0: And once we did all that, it doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like, all right, we did we did a client, we did load balancers, we did a few <laughs> things here and there.
1: Uh, sounds, sounds like a lot.
0: <laughs> I mean, some people are just like, oh, okay, it doesn't, you know, I guess a developer will appreciate it because it is a lot of work. And then once we did all that, we're like, all right, we're ready for Kubernetes, right? So there's like this two-year journey of just like Kubernetes is just in reach, but like we have to, we kind of need to do all these steps to get there. And then last year is in August when we released the beta of uh, our Kubernetes engine.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am joined today, as I often am, by my colleague, Ryan Donovan. Ryan, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm
2: doing all right.
1: How you doing, Ben? Not bad. Spring has sprung where I am. I've had many animal interactions today. I rescued. I was late to my last meeting because I was rescuing a turtle that was crossing the road. So, I've done my good deed for the day. Good Samaritan badge for the day. We are going to be having a chat today about Kubernetes. We're going to be talking with some fine folks at Vulture who are sponsoring this episode. Ryan, you and I have talked about the K8 many times yeah I feel like the adoption and the usage must be increasing because it, it comes up on a lot of the editorial we do as well as like the pitches that
2: are inbound. Yeah, I think with how much cloud adoption there is and how much sort of virtual infrastructure, this is becoming more and more an easy way just to handle that infrastructure. yeah, especially the lift and shift. All right, so uh, we
1: have two great guests today. Walt and David. I'm going to let them introduce themselves, give you a quick flyer of who they are, and then we'll dive into the conversation. So, Walt, David, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast. Hi.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: My pleasure. Walt, why don't we start with you? Tell folks quickly how it is you got into software and tech and what it is you do over at Vulture.
3: Yeah. All right. So, hello, everyone. My name is Walt Ribeiro, and I am the developer advocate at Vulture. So, the way that I I got started was probably back in 2010. I started writing C on my Arduino. I was trying to, you know, just write some code with a bunch of like pianos and just trying to like MIDI hack them. Then I started doing a lot of like music production. And then when I came back around in about two thousand and I'd say maybe about 2018, 19, at the height of the pandemic, probably about a year, maybe about two years ago. I just doubled down. Then I, I just started writing more and more code because it was the only thing to pretty much do.
1: Stuck at home being a creative technologist.
3: I like. <laughs> yeah. Then I, I was the developer advocate at Linode and I, you know, jumped around and I did a lot of software stuff for, for different companies. And then Vulture reached out to me and I've been here for about a year now and it's been awesome. I love the stack. I love the people here. I think that that where the company is headed and what they've built, you know, even the things that David's built, I'm super bullish on. It's pretty much where I am today. I just do a lot of audio, a lot of uh, video production work, and a lot of
0: coding.
1: That's pretty much it. David, welcome to the program. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into the world of software, and yeah, what it is you find yourself doing day-to-day at Vulture.
0: Sure. So, uh, hi, everyone. My name's David Dimko. So, how did I get into programming? I think it started late 90s early 2000s i kind of became obsessed with like computer games and it it was just basically me kind of being obsessed with like counter-strike and like starting to mess around with like putting graphics cards in my computer trying to get you know better graphics stuff like that and then kind of led me down into like i want i love counter-strike so i want to make a clan i need a website so it was just kind of like this really nerdy kind of like oh this is a computer and i can do things with it and kind of like it just evolved from there right we get that a lot from from guests.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a story we hear a lot. Folks uh, who've been on the podcast, they built forums for uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater 6. They were into Neopets. You know, they were into MySpace and they wanted to, to customize it, to change it, to be part of a group, to organize a community. And that's kind of what led them on the path. So I love hearing that story.
0: Yeah, so it was mostly around computers and Counter-Strike. Then I kind of fell out of it around high school. You know, I just, I don't know, we just kind of fell out of computers. But then when I went to college, kind of went, kind of got back into it, computer science degree, traditional type of path there. And after that, I kind of jumped around from a few organizations here and there. A more notable company was at Vonage, and that's kind of where I got exposed to a lot of API design and cloud, cloud native type of work. So after a while being at Bondage, kind of honing my skills there, I, I eventually came over to Vulture with a clear vision to kind of focus on building out a managed Kubernetes product for for Vulture.
1: Just quickly for listeners who are not familiar, can you give me a couple sentences like what is Vulture? How would you describe it? And you know, where does it fit into the, the marketplace for what's being offered to developers these days?
3: So where we fit is that Vulture wants to be pretty much the best of services for all these different developers so we have you know like we have our own block storage but you can also we have a a lot of partners that have block storage too that we actually work with we have uh you know a ton of great locations too we have our custom iso so there are a lot of unique features that vulture has that others don't you know we just like to be the best of breed for people i mean even our marketplace is filled with a lot of great apps and on top of the things that david's built like our like api and our open-source projects, and our load balancers. So that's pretty much where Vulture stands, because in some sense, it's sort of a like, commodity, but there are some like, unique prospects that we have that people depend on, and that we just like
1: to be sort of like the best of breed for all of those different products. You mentioned sort of a wide spectrum of things and being best of breed, but like, just briefly in one sentence, like, what are people coming to you for top-level
3: yeah. Okay. So in terms of just a quick, like one sentence is we have the best price to performance for all of our product offerings.
2: So we, we opened it, talking about uh, a lot of people are are getting more and more familiar with Kubernetes, but you're building out a managed Kubernetes at scale. What's the difference there?
0: That's a good question, because that's something that's something we kind of learned the hard way. And I think every kind of cloud provider kind of learned this, right? So me coming to Vulture, I, I knew Kubernetes, I knew how to work with it. So I was pretty confident, right? But once you need to abstract the complexity and offer a managed product that removes I want to say all the headache because there's still YAML, right? But a big chunk of that is a very unique problem that we had to solve for. For example, you know, a lot of tools that people are used to are like cube or cube spray, where these they're kind of building these things and you kind of have access to everything. But on a managed platform we remove the control plane like you don't have access to it you don't even you don't know how it runs where it runs and you're not really concerned about it it gives you that freedom and flexibility to kind of focus on your workloads and only your workloads and you don't have to care about the underlying infrastructure so there were a lot of challenges and interesting problems that we kind of faced on okay h- how do we remove that abstraction how do we do upgrades? How how do we maintain your x509 certs so you can have HTTPS kind of on your cluster? So there was a lot of unique problems that I guess I didn't account for because I'm like, oh, I know Kubernetes, right? I I use it every day. And then it's just like, there's a huge difference between managing it, using it, and then as a cloud provider offering it that kind of abstracts all of those kind of pain points. So it was the journey there was quite interesting
2: cuz like kubernetes seems like it's already abstracting the infrastructure this is seems like it's it's another level up right
0: yeah so you know with kubernetes you're kind of treating your entire cloud infrastructure as one solid compute so you know you kind of write yaml and you can interact with you just don't care how many instances you have or if you want block you kind of just tell kubernetes you want block and it does all that for you but for us, you know, we had to integrate with a lot of these solutions. So for example, for block storage, we had to integrate with the container storage interface. And that's a plugin that allows Kubernetes to work with Vulture as a first-class citizen in regards to block. The same thing for load balancers or worker nodes. You know, We had to integrate with the CCM so that Kubernetes knows that it's running on Vulture and it knows how to interact with these resources. Now, the biggest abstraction we kind of had to do was the control plane because you're you're not concerned about where the api server is or wh- where the scheduler is running or the the controller manager like that's that's all abstracted to you like you don't even have access to it so when you're executing these kubectl commands you ha- we supply a kube config, but you don't really it's going to a black box inherently so some interesting problems there were you don't have access to that box so how how does something like kube proxy which is what kind of handles the ip rules under the hood work because in our current setup we're not running these as you know containerized services on the control plane and that was an interesting problem cuz you know you look online for admin and all these tools and everyone's like you use kube proxy it runs as a container and it's like well, we're not we're solving for a different problem so there were these Tools that I've never heard of, something like connectivity, which allows you to kind of proxy to these, these containers. So if you want to use like kube metrics or or extend the API server, the control plane, which is this isolated service, has to be able to communicate back to the worker nodes through these API calls. And it's that was a very interesting problem to solve for because it's it's almost undocumented. Everyone's just like you use kube proxy. And it's like, but we can't. <laughs> so that 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 was an interesting, one of the bigger ones we solved along with like x509 certs and etcd backup stuff like that.
1: So yeah, you had mentioned to me, David, in an earlier conversation that on this journey to sort of bring Kubernetes and manage Kubernetes at scale to Vulture, you ended up doing quite a lot of work on API and v2 of the API. Can you talk a little bit about how that journey went?
0: Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, like I, I came on board, and the whole concept or the whole reason was like we want managed Kubernetes. So we I'm like, okay, that's great. So we started looking into it, and it's like we boiled it down to like what's the bare minimum we need to start with, and we kind of looked at, it, we're like, okay, we need the CCM and we need the CSI as core components to kind of even consider to have Vulture be a first class citizen on a Kubernetes cluster. So we built the Go client, which Hey, we have a Go client. Why don't we open source this? And then that kind of snowballed from there. It's because we had this, this Go client and it's like, Hey, you know what? Like we can start integrating with Terraform and Packer and and write our own CLI and start integrating and, and basically adopting and embracing open source, which we didn't do before that. So that was like step one in the journey, right? We started, we took a detour to build out our open source and kind of One reason for that, too, is as a cloud provider, we're offering infrastructure and we're offering these abstractions, but we also want to allow any user to interact with us as many ways possible. So if you want to use the API, great. If you want to use the UI, awesome. But maybe you want to automate everything with Terraform or other other kind of tools. So that was a really kind of good stopgap because it also it allowed us to kind of give back to the to the open source, but also open these avenues up for developers to interact with Vulture in more meaningful ways That for them. After that, the next step was, you know, we, we, we need a load balancer. One of the things with Kubernetes is you need to have some kind of IP address that allows for ingress. You can use node ports or other solutions, but not, they're not that great for for scaling. So we needed a load balancer and we didn't offer managed load balancers. So that kind of led us down another detour where, hey, we need managed load balancers. Let's build this product, which is we need it for Kubernetes. And load balancers are great. And similar issues there. You know, I've used load balancers in the past. And I think that's one interesting thing as a cloud provider is we've all used cloud providers. And you don't think how a load balancer works. You kind of just deploy one, you hook it up, and you're good to go and it's completely different when you're a cloud provider and you're offering it because it's like how does this work you kind of have to under you have to go back to like these basics of like how load balancing works and stuff and offer that after that we we integrated with the CCM and the CSI and at this point like all, all these integrations one thing that always kind of stuck with me and kind of bothered me a bit was our was our API our V1 it was a product of its time it worked but it, it, there were a lot of things that that left to be desired so after that we kind of decided like before we go and start doing managed kubernetes we should probably overhaul our api to a v2 and modernize it a bit with modern crud actions pagination a restful design something that you know a developer who would use an api would come to expect in today's day and age so we did that. And then another detour, we had to update all of our tooling and kind of adopt this new API and have that be the basis for everything moving forward. And once we did all that, it doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like, all right, we did we did a client, we did load balancers, we did a few <laughs> things here and there.
1: Uh, sounds, sounds like a
0: lot. <laughs> I mean, some people are just like, oh, okay, it doesn't, you know, I guess a developer will appreciate it because it is a lot of work. And then once we did all that, we're like, "All right, we're ready for Kubernetes, right?" So there's like this two-year journey of just like Kubernetes is just in reach, but like we have to, we kind of need to do all these steps to get there. And then last year's in August when we released the beta of uh, our Kubernetes engine,
2: uh, it's funny we've uh, done posts about scope creep, and this seems like. Not scope creep, but realizing what the scope actually is.
1: Yeah, David, were you getting feedback internally from other developers who, like you, had ideas of what it would be like to work on? Was it coming from customers? Like You're kind of describing, as Ryan said, starting out with an idea and realizing all of the different features or components or approaches or technologies that you'd need to build in for this to be a great experience when it finally kind of comes to market. So where was all that input coming from and and how are you making the decisions about what to build and what not to?
0: It was, it was a bit of both. It was internally, we kind of saw the need, for example, like Terraform, like we, we saw that infrastructure as code and this Terraform thing is picking up speed and like, we probably should do it. So it was, it was a bit of that where like, we're kind of realizing like, oh, if we have this go client, then we can also do these three things. Right. It was just this, this realization of us kind of connecting the dots, like we need this. Oh, but wait, if we're going to do this, it kind of hooks it all up. And it was also customer feedback, right? Like our customer support is pretty good because we we encourage Vulture users to give us feedback. And that's one thing I think is really good because in any of our product launches, we always kind of release it as, as a beta and encourage users to try it and give us feedback. That way we can get really good feedback and have this iterative loop of like what users actually want. Because sometimes it's hard to gauge if they want a specific feature for a specific product, or if something we implemented just isn't working the way we thought it would. So it's a blend of both really. And even now with with something like Kubernetes, I don't have all the answers and I, and especially now in a cloud native space, users workloads are so varied, right? So it's really good to have like these open channels of communication. We try to dog food as much of our own product as we can, because that definitely shows us any kind of pain points. So like, I'm using a load balancer a VKE, and there's just something that's just really getting under my skin, chances are it's it's not just me. So having that feedback loop is definitely internal and external for us.
1: Very cool. Yeah, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It's a interesting place to be in, and I guess I, it feels like we end up here a lot because of I think the nature of our clientele, which is like folks who are themselves developers, building for other developers or people who need great software products. But you know, it, it can be challenging to dog food. It can also be. I don't know if you've heard of this little company called AWS, but you know, like sometimes the thing you build internally ends up being, you know, quite amazing in the marketplace itself. So, let's move on a little bit. I guess, you know, what's fascinating to me about this story is the evolution and the path it led you to. You mentioned, you know, the API and what you learned about that. For open source, you know, you mentioned going more in that direction. What drives that is that again, sort of understanding that you're going to get more developers and momentum and attention? Is that flexibility or hope that it will improve sort of the speed of innovation and evolution? When you look at open source and considering whether or not that belongs in your organization, what are the pros and cons and and what ultimately did you decide?
0: I think think it boils down to, if I take a step back, I am kind of approaching this with like a developer mindset, right? So like if I'm a developer... And there's like a new tool like Terraform or Packer or CLI. Like I want those tools at my disposal. And like, I guess selfishly, like if sometimes if there's like a tool I want to use or it doesn't have like a good open source project or a client, I'm inclined not to really use it. The open source allows developers to become more creative. And it also allows that quicker, I guess it's the flexibility because we have a Node.js client alongside a Go client, right? So if we have a javascript developer who wants to get really creative with our api they don't have to make these direct api calls they can just use our javascript client or you know if if i'm building some kind of automation tool that that's cross cloud then having terraform or these infrastructure as code tools available to them to me it it opens up it allows developers to become more creative and open up avenues to how to interact with us if we if we just have a ui that's good for a large use case, but having that uh, that API and a lot of these open source tools allows just allows for flexibility and integrations that that may otherwise not have been available.
2: We've talked to uh, other folks who have open sourced from within companies. Did you run into roadblocks? Any people saying like, let's not share our secrets
0: not really I haven't we haven't really encountered that yet. We have an example of this one tool that we kind of used internally that we ended up open sourcing, although now it's like. There's no need for it because of our managed Kubernetes engine. But at the time, we really wanted to test our CCM and our CSI version updates, right? Just to make it easy. And spinning up a Kubernetes cluster by hand, just, I don't think that's fun. I don't think anyone enjoys that. So we built this Terraform module called Condor. It is, the pun is intended. Where you could just define a Kubernetes cluster and it would build it on Vulture, That was fun to do because it was a good stopgap because it's like we're building managed Kubernetes. We're not there yet, but we have Terraform and we built this open source library module for Terraform that will spin up a Kubernetes cluster for you right now on Vulture as you're kind of waiting for the managed solution. So we ended up, you know, that that's kind of dead now because of managed Kubernetes. But at the time it was fun because that was something we built internally and open sourced it for the users.
1: I think what you said to me also kind of stood out as the engineering mindset. You know, if you buy a car or a computer, as you got started with the graphics cards, you want to be able to open it up and tweak it if you decide to go in a certain direction. And you want that feedback loop to exist between you and the product, where if you need to build an integration or you feel like there's something you can improve, that's where open source really empowers the developer. And so they're more likely to adopt those tools. And it feels like increasingly that plays a key role in what, you know, wins out in the marketplace, all other things, you know, pricing, availability, performance
2: being equal. Definitely. So you built out the huge, you know, all the backend stuff, the load balancer, the managed Kubernetes. Once you had it on the market, what things did, did customers sort of drive forward?
0: Our, our initial launch of VKE, we completely, again, this is just, there's a difference between using it and offering it. So when our first beta launch, like users quickly realized like, Hey, you're missing this crucial aggregation layer. And I'm just like, we're what? Um so <laughs> that was one thing That's we're just like yeah so i'm just like i was i was freaking out cuz i'm just like oh my god we forgot the aggregation layer so the clusters worked except if you wanted to install any kind of api extension tooling it just didn't work so that was like the first thing that if we didn't have that feedback loop i, we, I probably would have realized it way after the fact but after that it was we're still getting you know a lot of feedback like you know we want more specific regions because when we originally launched, we only had a few. As of today, we're in almost every region. And then it's a lot of you know feature requests like, hey, you don't have a cluster autoscaler. So like okay, we, we see the need for us to integrate with the Kubernetes autoscaler or hey, like how can I upgrade and this is a big pain point. how can I upgrade my cluster? well you're going to have to deploy a new one and kind of port over your 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 block storage so it's a lot of the things we got back is mostly a, around maintenance and and how a user can keep their cluster going without having to spin up a new one so availability and upgrades are two of our two of the big ones we're kind of focused on right now on getting out
3: in terms of that whole like feedback loop there's a lot of like social media feedback that i get that i pass on to him and his team which is i mean it's one thing to get the feedback like internally or from the actual like developers but then there's just you know there's some you know talk that i might see and then i'll just like pass it on when i first started at vulture uh it was like my like first week i just turned and said so who's this like huge team that's building like our whole like Kubernetes engine and, and our like API and then it, then it turns out it was just like David and like two other people. I was like, oh my gosh, this is like crazy. So I, I mean, I'm impressed um, both from the outside looking in, and then you know now that I'm here to see that it was a like small team, something that's I'm just used to seeing a bunch of you know like pair programming kind of things within like different companies. And so he does a lot, and you know in terms of like our like API or our Kubernetes engine or our open source stuff. You know, I think that having that that whole feedback loop and the fact that it's it's a smaller team is actually what helps us out a lot. It Keeps us quick.
1: David, Walt, what are you excited for on the roadmap? You know, we talked about you know what customers are asking for, the things that you've built. You know, to the degree that you can, let us know things that are coming or things you've announced that you're excited about. You know, what is 2022 going to hold for Vulture? The big thing for on my part
3: is uh, location, location, location. So when I first started we had 16 locations we're now at, at 25 and as David said you know we're in pretty much like every region we just opened up uh, a location in Mumbai last week and we've no plans to stop so we're at 25 right now and we you know continue just just to keep on growing that part of it too because uh, the closer that we can get to the actual fingertips of our users just to you know lower the ping time or you know just to have just a better feature set is uh, a big part of what I think uh, Pretty much like differentiates us from many others, and so of course there's our products too. But in terms of like how I feel with uh you know where we're headed for 22 and 23, our locations is a big part of it.
1: David, anything you want to shout out before I head us out to the outros?
0: So as I mentioned earlier, as of actually yesterday, yesterday we enabled our Kubernetes engine in. 22 locations from the original six or seven we had I forget what number it was so people will be pleased to see that and in the coming weeks I guess we have been kind of teasing it upgrades are coming users won't have to be deploying um, duplicate clusters anymore so BKE upgrades for kubernetes versions is coming out soon so I'm sure that will be a great hit
1: all right everybody it is that time of the show we are going to give a shout out to the winner of a lifeboat badge that's somebody who came on stack overflow Uh, they went to a question that had a score of negative three or less they gave it an answer and the answer now has a score of 20 or more and that question has a score of three or more so they saved some knowledge from the dustbin of history awarded yesterday to gv g-i-v-i how can i use the singleton pattern in an android development project all right if you're curious to know more about android development and singletons, we have some knowledge for you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I am Ben Popper. I am the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. If you have questions or suggestions about the programming on the podcast, shoot us an email, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating and a review. It really helps.
2: I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at Arthur Donovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com.
3: Yeah, so my name is Walt Barrow again, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Walt Rib, because no one knows how to spell my last name. So uh, I used to have the Walt Barrow handle, and then I changed it to Walt Rib. And just to find out more about what we offer, you can just go to Vulture.com, that's vultr.com. That's vult com. From there, you can find all of our products and our offerings
0: there. And again, my name is David Dimko. You can find me on Twitter at ddimco. That's D-Y-M-K-O. And if you have any questions or concerns about Kubernetes, feel free to uh, tweet at me or just drop a support ticket, I guess. Thanks.
1: <laughs> yes. Everybody who listens to this show, please drop David a support ticket. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will talk to you soon.